All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is Anant Amalia, one of the APDs over at uh, Washington Hospital Center. Uh, I once again today have the pleasure of introducing our speaker for today. Um, we have Dr. Sarma Singham. Uh, Dr. Singham is one of our fine uh, cardiovascular intensivists here at Washington Hospital Center. Uh, after completing his cardiology fellowship at the University of Louisville and his critical care fellowship at Mayo, the Mayo Clinic, he joined us at Hospital Center in September this, uh, this past year. Um, in addition to cardiac critical care, he has the professional and research interests in echocardiography, atherothrombotic MI, and, uh, and other, other things. Uh, today, Dr. Singham will be talking about temporary mechanical circulatory devices in the ICU. And uh, with that, I will hand it over to you, Dr. Singham. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Molly, for the introduction. We'll just get, in, get started here. These are my disclosures, no direct conflicts of interest. I'd like to thank Drs. Peplos, Kinnensburg, and Brown for helping me with these slides. We'll get started with the case presentation. And we'll try to keep it as interactive as possible, so feel free to interrupt me if you have any questions. We have a 49-year-old male presenting to the emergency room with dyspnea and chest pain that started about 26 hours ago, worsening dyspnea over the past day or so. Blood pressure is 110 over 60. Heart rate is 110 beats per minute. He's saturating about 94% on two liters. He appears diaphoretic and uncomfortable. So any thoughts so far? Anything anybody may be thinking? Well, I'd, I'd be concerned for a heart attack. Yeah, yeah, I would be too. That's that's excellent. Thank you. Thank you for chiming in. So yeah, so he, concerning here for chest pain, perhaps presenting a little late, 26 hours ago, that's uh, chest pain started about 26 hours ago. He doesn't look comfortable. Something seems off, definitely concerning. And here's his, uh, his EKG. Any takers? Yeah, definitely. There's, there's definitely anterior Q waves. And that's right. There are ST elevations, right? This is uh, definitely a concerning ECG. Right. There's uh, potentially a right bundle, but more importantly, there are ST elevations in V, almost not, not clearly seen in V1, but V2, V3, V4. That is definitely concerning for an anterointerceptal MI. So what would you do next? Let's go ahead and put it in your chat box. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption is to take, take, take them to the cath lab. That's right. I think everybody agrees, cath lab. So he goes to the cath lab. He undergoes coronary angiography. He undergoes percutaneous coronary intervention with a drug-eluting stent to the proximal left anterior descending artery. The procedure is successful. He has restoration of TM3 flow. They put in a right heart catheter. They admit him to the CICU. Comes up to the CICU. His blood pressures are a little soft, 85 over 50, heart rate's 120. He's in AFib, rapid ventricular rates. He's saturating 90% on four liters. The right heart cath data demonstrates a right atrial pressure of 25 millimeters mercury, PA pressure of 55 over 30, a wedge of 30, and a PA sat of 44%. What are your thoughts about the hemodynamics on the screen? Still in shock. It's concerning. I agree. So what would, what would you guys do next? And there's no right or wrong answers. I'm just, uh, we'll be talk about, we can talk about each option if you guys have any thoughts on what you would do next. Okay. Inotropes. I think inotropes are a good way to go about this. 
So this patient does get started on some inotropy. You get started on milonone, 0.25 mics per kilogram per minute. And then about four hours later, there's another set of data where the right atrial pressure is 20 millimeters mercury, PA pressure is 56 over 28, a wedge of 30, and a PA sat of 46. And now on telemetry, there's frequent runs of non-sustained VT. All right, so what would you do next? And here, I don't think there's necessarily a wrong answer, but I think it's important to talk through these options. Okay, so it looks like the overwhelming majority picked D because this is a mechanical support talk. But would anybody consider starting norepinephrine? Or even increasing melanone? Or adding epi? Yes. I I think all of those are, are reasonable considerations. Maybe not ditch, but... Yeah, it might happen before before we, we consult our shock team. But you're right. It's not that it's wrong to increase these, uh, increase your inotropy or add inotropy. But I agree with Ali that, you know, we're running into frequent runs of non-sustained VT here. And so perhaps that non-sustained VT would worsen. But also it's reasonable to try maybe a low-dose epi while we're waiting for our shock team consultation and try to see if we can improve our hemodynamics. But maybe we can't because we might run into VT. And this is where we really should be, we should stop and think about, hey, is this time to to start temporary mechanical support device if this is the right patient for it? So our agenda today will be case presentations, which we already started. We'll talk about a little bit about the epidemiology of the contemporary cardiac intensive care unit since it's evolving over time. The indications and contraindications for the use of mechanical support devices. We'll talk a little bit about balloon pumps and impellas, and I think there's another talk for VA ECMO later, so we won't talk about that today. And we'll talk a little bit about the guidelines that just came out, and then we'll wrap up this conversation with a summary slide. So let's talk about the epidemiology of our contemporary cardiac intensive care unit. So as you could probably guess, the, pri- the pr- primary shock in the CICU is cardiogenic shock. However, In the past, it used to be that the majority of patients who came to us were because of acute myocardial infarction causing cardiogenic shock. But in our latest studies from the multi-center registry, the triple CTN, we had noted that there's an increase in non-ischemic cardiogenic shock coming in to our ICUs. These are patients perhaps who have valvulopathies causing cardiogenic shock, or chronic heart failure causing cardiogenic shock. And about 18% of these patients in the cardiac intensive care unit also have ischemic but non-AMI cardiogenic shock. Perhaps these are patients who have a decreased supply or increased demand causing ischemia leading to cardiogenic shock in an already weakened ventricle. Of the patients who end up getting temporary mechanical support devices in the cardiac intensive care unit, the predominant are still AMI-CS patients, as well as heart failure CF patients. The non-shock patients are those who perhaps have VT, VF ablations, or high-risk PCI who end up requiring mechanical support. And so in our ICU, what kinds of mechanical support are we using? Well, predominantly in our AMI and non-AMI-CS and mixed shock, we're using balloon pumps. And there's also a, a, a combination of Impella and VA ECMO that I've been using, but predominantly it's been balloon pumps. This is a, an excellent study by Dr. 
Drew and colleagues who looked at about 28,000 patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by cardiogenic shock who received PCI at about 928 hospitals in the NCDR cath PCI and chest pain MI registry. And the graph to the left demonstrates that about 42% of these people actually received mechanical support. And from 2015 and to 2017, the proportion of people receiving mechanical support in this population is about the same. It really hasn't gone up as compared to medical therapy alone. On the right side, you see this graph where the use of balloon pump has gone down and the use of Impella has gone up. Between 2015 and 2017, there has been an increase in the use of Impella, which is the intravascular microaxillary, uh, microaxial LVAD support. It went up from 9.9% to about 20%, whereas the use of balloon pumps has decreased from 83% to 73%. So what are the indications for temporary mechanical support? This is the way I look at it. This is the sky staging for cardiogenic shock. A is for those at risk. B is for those who are at beginning shock. And C is those who are in classic cardiogenic shock. These are the patients who have a cardiac index less than 2.2 liters per minute per meter squared, who also have end organ dysfunction. Patients who go from class C to deteriorating shock or extremist shock should be considered for mechanical support. So patients who are on inotropic therapy but are worsening despite your pharmacologic therapy should be considered for mechanical support. So these are the suggested indications. And there's no gold standards for this, but this is a list I came up with. Patients worsening in shock, you can consider mechanical support as a bridge to therapy, whether that be recovery, LVAD, or transplant. Worsening or persistent arrhythmias, mechanical complications of acute myocardial injury, persistent myocardial ischemia, and a need to increase coronary perfusion. These are those patients who are essentially waiting for cabbage after a left heart cath that demonstrates severe disease, post-surgical hypotension or shock, and prophylaxis for high-risk coronary or EP procedures. And the contraindication, I would say, is if the probability of myocardial recovery is low, and the patient is not a candidate for bridge or transplant, or L, I'm sorry, bridge to transplant or LVAD, they should not be considered for temporary mechanical support. So these could be patients who have a reversible neurologic process, perhaps they have end-stage dementia, or they have a very large uh, hemorrhagic stroke. Maybe they're progressive stage four cancer. Perhaps they have a very severe non-cardiac uh, organ dysfunction, like severe ILD. Patients who don't have reasonable recovery should not be considered for mechanical, temporary mechanical support. Let's talk a little bit about that, the intraortic balloon pumps. So an intraortic balloon pump goes in either through a femoral approach or an axillary approach. It's positioned distal to the left subclavian artery, and it inflates in diastole to increase diastolic blood pressure and increase coronary blood flow. It deflates in presystole, decreasing afterload and systolic blood pressure. The map stays about the same. The IABP shock 2 trial, which was published in 2012 in the New England Journal of Medicine, is the most pivotal IABP trial that everybody should really be aware of. This 
This trial looked at the routine use of balloon pumps compared to standard medical therapy in AMICS patients who underwent early PCI. The outcome was a 30-day mortality. They took 600 patients. They diagnosed them with cardiogenic shock. So they, their diagnosis for cardiogenic shock was systolic blood pressure less than 90 for over 30 minutes or the use of vasoactive agents and in patients with end-organ perfusion. They excluded patients who, re- who required prolonged resuscitation or comatose who were in prolonged cardiogenic shock, who, were, who had severe peripheral vascular disease, or they had severe to moderate aortic, stenosis, aortic regurgitation, and those patients over the age of 90. They randomized them one-to-one, balloon pump and no balloon pump. IABP was maintained under hemodynamic stabilization, and crossover to balloon pump was allowed in patients who had BSD or PAP rupture. And the primary endpoint was 30-day death. And this is the Kaplan-Meier curve. There's no difference between those who received balloon pump and those who did not, with a p-value of 0.92. In fact, there's no difference in any of the secondary endpoints. There's no increase in repeat MI, no no difference in stroke, peripheral ischemic complications, life-threatening bleeds, or sepsis. So, the routine use of balloon pumps for revascularized patients in cardiogenic shock does not reduce 30-day mortality. There's no difference in subgroups for any of the secondary endpoints. And here's some pearls for balloon pumps. So balloon pumps, when they're in one-to-one or one-to-two, you could probably forego anticoagulation. But for balloon pumps that are at a slower rate, one-to-three, you should consider systemic anticoagulation to prevent pump thrombus issues. You should really be looking at a daily chest X-ray for the position of that balloon pump marker. A balloon pump that's malpositioned can occlude the renal arteries and cause kidney injury. Platelet consumption is also pretty common. It can be reported in anywhere between 40 to 80% of patients. And this thrombocytopenia is from direct destruction of platelets, but this is often mild. And remember, arrhythmia can affect your balloon pump position, or balloon pump function. So if you have atrial fibrillation, rapid ventricular rates of 130s, your balloon pump is not going to appropriately capture it. And perhaps balloon pump is not an efficient use of mechanical support in that situation. Now let's talk about Impella. The use of Impella has gone up. And so it's important for us to be cognizant of what Impella is. You might hear of multiple different types of Impella, but I like to split them up into two big categories. CP and 5-5. Impella CP is that that's placed by an interventional cardiologist. These are pump, these are introduced through a 14 French sheet. They are 14 French pump motors. They can be placed femorally or axillary. And they provide an, an average flow of about 3.7 liters per minute of cardiac output. An Impella 5-5 is engrafted into the axillary artery by a cardiovascular surgeon. The introduced diameter is quite large, 23 French. And the pump is also large. It's a 19 French pump. And as you can probably guess, it provides 5.5 liters per minute of blood flow, which is essentially full cardiac output augmentation. Okay. So how does an impella work? We take a catheter. We traverse it across the ascending aorta, retrograde, past the aortic valve and place it in the left ventricular cavity. There's a pigtail attached to the impella CP that allows passage through 
fluoroscopy guidance across the left across the LVOT and across the aortic valve. There's an inlet cage with that small red arrow, which sucks blood in. And there's an outlet cage, the green arrow, that's put, that puts blood into the aorta. So it sucks blood from the LV and puts it in the aorta. That's all it really does. The CP has a pigtail. The Impella 5.5, since it's placed by surgery, does not have a pigtail. The Impella 5.5 is also much larger, 19 French as opposed to 12 French. So how does an Impella work? When you think of Impella, think ventricular unloading. You're taking blood from the LV and pushing it out into the aorta. So what you're essentially doing is dropping your end diastolic volume and end diastolic pressure. The objective is to decrease wall tension and decrease microvascular resistance, which in turn increases coronary blood flow, which in turn increases oxygen supply and decreases demand. The impella is also outputting blood into the aorta, which causes increased flow and increased aortic pressures, which increases coronary flow and increases overall work performed by the LV by increasing cardiac power output. The chart to the left are pressure flow curves. Green is normal and the purple is those patients in cardiogenic shock. The impella attempts to bring that curve back to the left. And what I want to point out is what ECMO does. ECMO does not, ECMO does not, it, it increases your afterload, whereas impella does not affect afterload. An impella is preload dependent and afterload sensitive. And that, that's why you can use an impella with an ECMO circuit. Because ECMO increases afterload, you can technically use an impella to unload the LV. Now, is there data to use impella in AMICS patients? The ISAR shock trial published in JAMA uh, in, in 2006 was the first one. Sorry, Jack, not JAMA. This looked at 26 patients. 13 had impella and 13 had balloon pumps. They were all AMICS patients and a primary endpoint was a change in cardiac index. Their secondary endpoint was 30-day mortality. This study demonstrated that about 10.30 minutes, there was an increase in cardiac index in the impella that's statistically significant as compared to the balloon pump. But when you look at cardiac index across 30 minutes to 22 hours, there was no difference in the increase in cardiac index of the impella as compared to the balloon pump with a P of 0.18. And the graph to the right, there is no difference in survival after 30 days when comparing impella and balloon pump. There have been a lot of trials that attempted to look at benefits of impella. And as you can see in the results section, a lot of these trials failed. The French trial failed, impress failed, recover failed, relief failed, impress Cardiac arrest failed. And it's because it's very challenging to recruit these patients into clinical trials. Although the Impella has shown improved hemodynamics, it has yet to show improved mortality. There is an active trial, the danger shock trial, that's going on right now, that's looking at six-month mortality with Impella CP. And that data has not been released yet. So can Impella assist with high-risk PCI? The PROTECT series trials looks at this data. The PROTECT-1 in 2009 was a feasibility study. The PROTECT-2 
Two, in 2012, demonstrated no difference in mortality between CP impella and balloon pump at 30 or 90 days. Protect T3 results, which just came out recently, demonstrated improved revascularization and less major adverse cardiac events with impella CP or 2.5 versus balloon pump at 90 days. And, and Protect 4 is actively ongoing right now, which compares impella versus no impella in high risk PCI. Here's some impella. Pearls. Impella positioning is also very important. Although in balloon pumps we use x-rays, we should be using echo for positioning of our impella. Impella requires systemic heparin. It also requires heparin in the purge solution, although the newer data is suggesting that you can use bicarb instead of heparin in the purge solution. And yes, Impellas did have some issues. The Impellas CPs especially had a lot of issues with hemolysis and access site complications. However, with the 5.5s, there appears to be less hemolysis, perhaps less than, and less than 1% of, of, is, is demonstrated in some data. And that could be due to less shear, perhaps the cannula is bigger, and less positional issues since it's placed by uh, a, a, a cardiovascular surgical approach. So what do the guidelines say? Well, the guidelines are quite sparse. Even in the latest guidelines published by the AHA, ACC, HFSA a couple of months ago, they really have just a one-liner. They say that in patients with advanced HEFREF and hemodynamic compromise with shock, you can consider temporary mechanical support as reasonable bridge to recovery or bridge to decision. The ESC guidelines are perhaps a little bit more detailed, but not much more. They say that in short term, that short term MCS can be considered in patients with cardiogenic shock as a bridge to recovery, a bridge to decision, or a bridge to bridge to another support device. They also suggest that balloon pumps can be used in patients with cardiogenic shock, especially those with mechanical complications of MI. They recommend against the routine use of balloon pumps in post-MI cardiogenic shock. That's a class 3B recommendation. So we should not be doing that. So how do we find the right patient for mechanical support? And for this, we really should be moving past the guidelines. This is a wonderful paper published by Dr. Alex Papoulos here at MedStar and Jack in 2021. In patients with suspected cardiogenic shock, we should really have a collaborative approach in identifying patients with shock. This team should consist of critical care cardiologists, advanced heart failure doctors, interventional cardiologists, cardiac surgeons, and our ECMO team. We should provide an area for a rapid multidisciplinary evaluation, obtain invasive hemodynamics, look at additional diagnostics in a comprehensive approach, and select the therapeutic intervention that is best suited for that patient. And this data shows that in patients who have cardiogenic shock and a shock team was, a pro, uh, was used, there was more use of invasive hemodynamic measurement, more use of pulmonary artery catheterization, and overall less use of mechanical support. But in those we did use mechanical support, there was increased use of advanced mechanical support, such as Impeller or VA ECMO. And he demonstrated that this team demonstrated an, a decrease in CICU mortality when using the shock team approach. And so it's important to consider collaborating with a multidisciplinary team in our sick patients 
who may perhaps benefit from advanced mechanical circulatory support. So let's summarize this. Our patient was transitioned to a CP impella, and after 48 hours, his cardiac index improved, his filling pressures improved with LV unloading, ionotropes, and diuretics. The impella was eventually removed, and he eventually went home. In summary, balloon pumps and impellas are common temporary mechanical support devices in cardiogenic shock. The theory of using mechanical support is strong, but the evidence-based data for using temporary mechanical support is weak. The guidelines are a work in progress, and a collaborative shock team approach is important when deciding to start temporary mechanical support for an individual patient. I'll take your questions now.